As the government's lead agency on cybersecurity, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, keeps getting higher budgets, more people, and more programs. Although her role is administrative, even CISA's chief of staff has a long history in the cybersecurity field. For an update, Kirsten Tote joins me now. Ms. Tote, great to have you on. Great to be with you, Tom, again. Thanks so much. And I think the last time we spoke with you, you were advising companies and federal agencies in the space of cybersecurity, but this kind of is a next logical step for you, correct? Absolutely. And I think, as you know, I mean, CISA is the uh, federal government's newest agency, but the agency responsible for defending the nation in cyber. Um, it's, a, it's a great evolution for me and certainly always uh, very grateful for the opportunity to serve. And as chief of staff, you have been here at a time of growth for the agency because it's pretty much bipartisan support for what it does and for increasing its budget. And so what's that like? Because that's not the case for most agencies. Well, it's been an interesting time. I'm coming up on my one-year anniversary in August, and I think you know what happened last year in cybersecurity is pretty fascinating because cybersecurity really became more of a kitchen table issue. You know, if you look at Colonial Pipeline or the JBS food manufacturing uh, issues, events. You know, I live in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and we saw lines at the gas pump because of Colonial Pipeline, and that wasn't because there was a shortage of gas, but that was because there was a fear of the shortage of gas, and that's kind of one of the first times we saw cyber having impact on people's lives where they actually felt it. And I think, you know, as we look at this issue, and we've always talked about cybersecurity as a nonpartisan issue, what we've seen uh, both parties coming together to say, we've got to be able to defend the nation, uh, industry, bring together all of the resources to bear to make ourselves more resilient. And I've heard agency cyber people say more and more with greater frequency that they are using the tools and the services that CISA is offering civilian agencies, much more than they said that they were using National Programs and Protection Directorate, if I can remember that old name. Yeah. <laughs> another another great acronym. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, I think when we look at CISA, we sort of see its mission in three buckets. There's the workforce piece, both internally to the agency itself, as we're building out. There's what CISA is responsible for in protecting the .gov. Uh, there are 101 federal agencies, and so CISA's role is to help defend each of those agencies in cyberspace. And then there's its work with industry and how it collaborates with industry. And I think that middle bucket, to your, to your point, has really evolved and progressed. We have uh, a catalog of known exploited vulnerabilities, which we share with industry, but importantly, we're sharing with our agencies. And then we've had very specific works through our binding operational directive on those uh, vulnerabilities that we're seeing most exploited. And, you know, our partnership with all these agencies is certainly improving and growing and seeing much more as a partnership and a collaboration. And on that personnel and workforce front, have you found ways to maybe speed up, let's say, or somehow compress the typical federal hiring cycle because what you're hiring for is so crucial? Well, there's so many aspects to this, and this is obviously a number one priority for our agency and for the director, uh, is building out the workforce, not just for CISA, but really setting a template for workforce development and cybersecurity for this industry. We talk a lot about the vacancies. I would assert that actually every job just about in, in the private sector as well as government has a cyber piece to it. We're all using a phone. We're using a laptop. And so being able to really bring this interdisciplinary approach to cybersecurity is critical. Uh, we have the cyber talent 
management system, which was launched in November of last year in some direct hiring authorities. And importantly, it's how do we go and to where the talent is? We can't expect everybody to log on to USA Staffing, but working much more to build out a younger workforce, going to high schools, to vocational schools, community colleges, and prioritizing diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. I'm particularly proud that we're going to be engaged in a neurodiversity effort this year to be able to truly build an inclusive work environment. And you've also got some pay flexibilities, too, because that's an issue in the cybersecurity field. Right. And that's occurring right now through our cyber talent management system. And I think, you know, as we look at these other elements, it's how do we ensure that we are attracting the best talent and treating our employees right? Um, And that certainly is, you know, this is a livelihood. And uh, this space right now, you know, cybersecurity is a national security priority. And that prioritization is critical. And it's certainly something that CISA takes very seriously. We are speaking with Kirsten Tote, Chief of Staff of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And on that issue of neurodiversity, that seems to be a growing area where people that have neurological issues that might be harming their ability sometimes to interact with people, nevertheless, are not actually intellectually challenged. They could be a genius in a particular area, especially in these technical and coding type fields and cyber. Tell us a little bit more about that that effort. Absolutely. I mean, the neurodistinct population is one that we have tended not to be inclusive of in workplace environments. When you think about an interview, what you're told is to make eye contact or how people's disposition, uh, what that can lead to as far as these very you know rigid guidelines. And so as we're looking at building out an inclusive environment, What's critical is that we are pulling in talents and aptitudes across the board. Cybersecurity is a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary issue. And so the aptitudes and talents that we need to bring in to build creative and innovative solutions exist in all people. And so we as a federal agency have a real opportunity to lead the way in looking at how do we attract that talent and work with those organizations that are working with neurodiverse individuals. You know, we're fortunate being uh, our offices in the Commonwealth of Virginia, obviously the federal government's in Washington, D.C. There are some great resources that work with neurodiverse individuals when they're coming out of high school, coming out of uh, colleges that we are partnering with now to bring that talent into uh, into our workforce. And just out of curiosity, how are people like that accommodated? If you have someone that's hearing or sight impaired or mobility impaired, there are well-known technological aids that can help them do their work. For the neurodiverse, though, that's a little bit of more of a subtle issue, isn't it? Well, it's really talking about how do we create that openness in the workforce? You know, we were working with an individual in the private sector uh, who is a neurodiverse individual who was talking about how in his signature line, he talks about how he interacts with people. And so it's looking at tools, whether it's through technology, whether it's someone sharing at the outset, this is how I will uh, engage with you. Uh, Everything from I don't answer a cold call to I schedule times, but it's really about those tools tools and communication. And if we think about all of that, that really applies to everybody. And so one of the things that we found as we're building out this inclusive environment is that the tools that we're learning by bringing in neurodiverse individuals, as well as uh, others, that those tools that are important to them are important to everybody. And what else should we know about the Cyber Talent Management Service? This is not brand new, but it's still evolving. Right. Well, so it launched in November of last year, so it's still pretty new, but it is very much about how can we bring in talent, to your point, with a different type of hiring authority. And this is through the Department of Homeland Security. It's a broader DHS effort. We're obviously working very closely with them, but it's a tool intended to bring on talent 
more quickly and to be able to your earlier point to have the compensation for the types of skills and expertise that we're looking uh, at recruiting and, and retaining here at CISA. And I imagine, though, like, say, agencies such as the FBI and other elements of the Justice Department, where you might be competing with well-paid people in the private sector, the mission is still a pretty good sell. You know, Tom, it, it absolutely is. And I think I one of the things when we've talked about different workforce development, if people are coming in cold to this, they'll say, well, you know, how do we get more people to get interested? And what we are often saying to them, that's not the issue. I have been so impressed with the caliber of people that are truly focused on the mission that want to come work at CISA. We just held a hiring event last week with over 5,000 interested candidates. And when I talk to schools, I just spoke to a group of undergrads and graduate students last year, I mean, last week, and there were so many that are legitimately interested. And I think that, you know, it's it's a wonderful element of and time in this uh, cybersecurity space. But I think it also is about the mission of the organization and what we're looking to do and how we're looking to do it. Um, and I think, you know, as as we build this out from a government perspective and an industry perspective, bringing in this talent is going to be critical to our success. We are speaking with Kirsten Tote. She is Chief of Staff at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And we're facing the clock. Can you stick with me for another segment? Yes, absolutely. On the topic of jointness and sharing with industry and with other elements in the government, with academia, the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. Tell us more about that and what progress you're making there, what some of the initiatives under that are. Absolutely. Well, we launched this last August. And for those of us that have been in this space for a long time, we know that the term public-private partnership lost its meaning a a while ago. What the JCDC is doing is real actionable intelligence sharing and actionable engagement between industry and government. And we saw it really come into play effectively into practice with the Log4Shell event last December. Uh, That was revealed on a Friday. On that Saturday, we gathered the group of companies that are our partners to look at the data, to look at what we were seeing. And I think what's so important about this is it's not always about having the answers, but about bringing together government and industry to share those data points in real time. We've developed a Slack channel, which is allowing for this back and forth of information exchange, which was particularly valuable when Russia invaded Ukraine and afterward. And, you know, what was interesting about the JCDC is we put together a plan in December for this anticipation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We tested it in January. And then, you know, unfortunately, we executed it in February when Russia did invade Ukraine. And I think that certainly our real-time work with industry has proven to be very helpful. We had uh, an event where we brought a company engaged with foreign countries when they saw a vulnerability. Our partnerships with the certs um, of over 100 countries has also allowed us to bring those relationships to industry. Because as we all know, no one entity can defend our nation can defend a sector by itself. And so this is all about how do we bring together these entities, but importantly, share that intelligence, which is relevant in the moment so that we can start putting together these data points. And when Russia did execute on that invasion of Ukraine, people anticipated that there would be some kind of a cyber wave going along with that. Did they, in fact, kick over a beehive and release a lot of cyber activity? Well, we certainly have seen Russia's cyber attacks on Ukraine. So I think it's important. People are often saying, you know, hey, we haven't seen anything. You know, make no mistake. You know, Russia has certainly used cyber tools against Ukraine. And what we have done as a nation is, you know, we had concerns over our energy sector, over our financial sector communications. And so we, CISA, as well as the federal government writ large, have worked very closely with these sectors 
to share information when we're getting it and help them be more resilient. You know, my background has been in homeland security, counterterrorism, and we always, you know, said, particularly after 9-11, you can't prove what you've prevented. And so I'm always very cautious when people are saying, hey, we haven't seen anything. You know, I won't necessarily pat ourselves on the back to say, hey, well, we must be doing, uh, you know, a perfect job, but I certainly think we're doing a good job. And so it's very uh, important to recognize that this is a marathon. We just don't know what mile we're in. And we continue to have to focus on the resiliency of our infrastructure and that joint industry government partnership. Well, it's probably noteworthy that this deeply into the pandemic and its aftermath with still a fairly significant portion of the federal workforce teleworking and remote working, that has not been a vehicle for any large-scale successful attack on government databases or government systems so far as we know. Well, certainly, you know, with the pandemic and with everyone going online and remotely, we expanded the threat surface, right? We we made it much more vulnerable. Um, but what we are seeing is therefore a prioritization of those tools to make our infrastructure more resilient, to make this threat landscape, you know, reduce the risk. That's something that we are constantly working on at CISA is how do we reduce and manage the risk to our infrastructure, uh, which certainly is the federal government um, that plays a key role in that. Is it fair to say that the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the NIST folks, and a lot of cyber and computer system brains over there are informing a lot of the initiatives that CISA undertakes? NIST is a great partner. I worked closely with NIST on the development of the Voluntary Cybersecurity Framework. I worked closely with NIST when I was running President Obama's Commission on Cybersecurity. And I think, you know, one of the things that we always have to look at in cybersecurity is there's not one entity within government or industry that does it all. And NIST has been a great partner to CISA. The Office of the National Cyber Director is a great partner. The FBI, you know, we work closely. NSA, all of these elements have become so much more important to our partnerships to create this resilience and also their relationships with industry and with uh, foreign countries and foreign governments. And what about Shields Up? Because that is guidance that is available to really anybody and all the sheets are so forth and, you know, all the sub menus are on the website for anyone to access. I'm wondering if if there's some connection between what industry is learning from CISA and how that might inform what the Defense Department is trying to do with CMMC, which they've had a little bit of a struggle with in recent years and months. One of the things that we have focused on so much at CISA is our communication with our stakeholder audience. And so while we may not always have perfect information, it's sharing what we know when we know it. And I really commend the Biden administration for looking to declassify information as quickly as it can, particularly when it came to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But when you look at Shields Up, that was very much about getting important and direct information out to industry quickly. So we talked about multi-factor authentication, empowering your CISOs, you know, getting senior leadership of companies to empower CISOs, encryption, making sure that companies were prioritizing these elements, raising the bar. What's been fascinating is as we've, again, kind of gone in this marathon of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what we've heard from companies is, you know, we don't want shields down. This actually is kind of the new normal. And how do we get this to a sustainable place? Because obviously there was a surge of resources and that's not sustainable. But how do we manage that? And, you know, Tom, I I make the analogy to what we were doing after 9-11. I was in the Senate during 9-11 and uh, was a delegate on the National Capital Planning Commission. And we talked about the temporary fences around the Capitol. We talked about temporary bollards around the monument. 
and then we closed down Pennsylvania Avenue. The National Capital Planning Commission made those bollards permanent. And I think that's kind of this, you know, this heightened next step. And it's something that we're seeing in industry, which is a positive because there's an awareness. And importantly, there is a real support for companies taking this next step toward being more secure. We are speaking with Kirsten Tote, Chief of Staff of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And in the analogous vein, in putting up some of those physical security measures that are permanent, you don't want to mar the site of Washington so it doesn't look like Pyongyang, which, you know, some parts of Pennsylvania Avenue toward 9th Street kind of do. But you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. The the idea of cyber security everywhere has to be consistent with usability of services the government offers. So I'm wondering, does the uh, JCDC also tie in with, say, the GSA's attempt and project to upgrade login.gov? which they want agencies to use to enable people to get to the government without so much fuss and yet consistent with security. Right. And that's really in cooperation with our cybersecurity division. I think your point is is exactly right, which is there's always been this tension in cybersecurity about educating the end user and moving security away from the end user. How do we make things accessible and usable, but keep them secure? And that's a tension I think that we see continuously. Um, But what we are seeing in this evolution of cybersecurity is a greater tolerance for security and for what that is. You know, we always say security is not convenient. We think about the, you know, seatbelts. For the generation that grew up without seatbelts, then when that became mandatory, it was inconvenient, bicycle helmets. But when you start to create that culture of security, you have individuals that are actually choosing it because they know that their lives are better and a bit more easier. We're still in that journey as far as making a culture of security in this country and truly in the world. Um, but I do think we're seeing progress for that for that accessibility piece and that ease of use. And bringing this around to the staff part of the chief of staff job, besides <laughs> direct cybersecurity expertise, which you need in great volume, what other personnel, human capital needs does the agency have at this point? Well, building out the workforce. We have uh, vacancies, as you mentioned earlier. You know, we've been given uh, a lot of money by Congress to do our mission. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, there's a lot here. So we take that very seriously. But it's building out the, the people attracting the talent. And as I said earlier, it's not just about us sitting here in the D.C. area, the National Capital Region, expecting talent to come to us. We need to go into the communities where this talent exists underserved communities, uh, non-traditional places where talent is, whether it's nonprofits, again, vocational schools, community colleges. Uh, We have a lot of partnerships that we're looking to build out so that we are truly bringing in an interdisciplinary uh, workforce that represents our diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility priorities. And that is, you know, a number one priority uh, for what we're doing. And again, it's not just about building CISA under that uh, under that guideline, but it's hopefully getting to a place where CISA becomes the model, not just for government, but for the workforce. And as it gets procurement and acquisition authority, which is coming next, you've got a serious specific issue of getting an acquisition workforce built. Absolutely. I mean, this is we are building our workforce uh, in real time and looking to do it as quickly as we can. We have a tremendous human capital team and really across the board, the team of people that have been brought in because to your earlier point, these individuals, our team is so driven by mission. And, you know, I feel very fortunate every day to be walking into this office with people that are putting service and mission um, at the forefront and prioritizing it. Kirsten Toad is chief of staff at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. Great to be with you as always. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, 
I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. is always on but you shouldn't be put junk sleep to bed during mattress firm's dream December sale get a king for the price of a queen or queen for a twin and save up to $700 on Sealy only at mattress firm